There's a Martin Luther quote that states, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. I'm going to take it even further to say we not only need prayer in our lives, but a healthy, deep sort of prayer life. We need a culture of prayer. I spent a significant part of the coronavirus quarantine period working on a curriculum for the junior church classes all about prayer. I truly believe that the time I spent preparing this curriculum and teaching it to the kids will have taught and blessed me more than the kids in the class. As I studied prayers in the Bible, Jesus' teaching on prayer, and praying through the Psalms, I felt my own prayer life developing and deepening. A little over a week ago, I taught the kids the ACTS acronym and how they should sing to God with praises and joy and cry out to him on their knees for help. As I worked on this curriculum for the kids, I was struggling with my own grief of losing my mom, which I experienced very heavily during the shutdown. I found myself falling to my knees asking God for help much more than I was singing his praises. However, as I really learned how to pray through the Psalms and how to lament like we've been going over in Sunday school, I was able to both cry out to God with pain and questions and simultaneously thank and praise him for the work he was doing on my fate through that suffering. We see here in this passage in Ephesians that Courtney read that Paul is both praising God and petitioning at the same time. Just after finishing the doxology in verses 3 through 14, remember that's one long sentence in the Greek, we move to another section in verses 15 to 23 that is again one long sentence in the Greek. Paul has finished his song of praise, which has celebrated their blessing, redemption, and salvation in Christ. This is actually the only Pauline letter to combine both a doxology and a prayer of thanksgiving and intercession. Paul's supplication for the continuing work of God and his readers grows out of his thanks for what God has already accomplished in them. And there are outlines on your table, um, and you can see there, um, this section is split into two larger or two smaller sections. The first one consisting of Paul's prayer of thanksgiving and supplication in verses 15 to 19a, and the second, which is on the back, (laughs) of the exaltation of God's power working in Christ in verses 19b to 23. The theme for this section is prayer is an essential part of transforming our minds through the Holy Spirit and God's power, which is available to us when we are in Christ. You can see as we start in verse 15 with the phrase, for this reason. This is both looking back to the verses that preceded it and looking forward to the ones that follow. Paul is moved to prayer of thanksgiving based on the past, present, and future blessings in Christ he was just praising God for and on the thought thought of the Ephesians' faith in Lord Jesus Christ he has heard of. The fact that Paul says, "...because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints," has caused some commentators to have debate on whether Paul knew the Ephesians well. Or again, it brings up that idea that this was a circular letter, which we talked about in week one. However, one commentator, Brock, states it very well, saying, Paul has been away for them for some time. He left Ephesus in AD 55, 
and probably wrote Ephesians during his imprisonment in Rome in AD 60 to 62. So he's been away from them for some five years and therefore would be hearing about how they were doing and responding to that information. Like when you've taught kids in Sunday school and five years later ask how they are doing and if they're staying in the knowledge you taught them and react with praises when you learn that they have. In verses, nine, in verses 15 to 19a, we have Paul's prayer for the Ephesians split into the thanksgiving and supplication portions. In point A on the outline, we see Paul's thanksgiving for the Ephesians' faith. This is found in verses 15 to 16. The beginning of Paul's letter is one of thanksgiving for the faith his readers have in Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. In thanking God for his readers' faith in Jesus, Paul is praising God for their saving faith. They have been saved by grace through faith, and that is something to thank God for. Faith and love do not earn us participation in this great work of God, but they are evidence of our participation in God's plan. Paul is giving appreciation not just for his readers' love of God, but their love for all the saints. The real evidence of God's work in us is not the love we claim to have for him, but our love for his people that others can see. So striking here is the word all. It is noted here that the Ephesians loved all the saints. This is often not true of Christian circles. As one commentator noted of a Jonathan Swift quote, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. I should say surface Christianity. Surface Christianity creates a foolish thinking of prejudice and judgments on others. But as stated here, this was not true with the Ephesians. As noted by one commentator, the word for love here is a, a gape, a thoughtful, purposeful love that wills to love even the unlovely, the very love of God himself. The Ephesians had this love in their hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 5 verse 5b states, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. 1 John 4.20 states, If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. When faith and love are paired together in the church, it is a sign of true faith. And it is something to thank and praise God for. This is what Paul was doing. He states next, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. His thanksgiving went on and on, and his enthusiasm is a beautiful thing. This is a typical attitude for Paul, and we can almost grow numb to reading it. But Christian sisters, this should be a typical attitude of us at Union Lake Baptist Church and as individuals. Do we thrill at hearing of the faith and love of others? Do we have joy in other spiritual accomplishments? Do we praise God when this is happening at other churches and other areas of the world, places we aren't even connected to? St. John of the Cross put it this way, As far as everyone is concerned, many experience displeasures when they see others in possession of spiritual goods. They feel hurt because others surpass them on this road and they resent it when others are praised. But it is a fact that only those who are thankful for the spiritual achievement of others, can truly pray for them. 
How should we pray for those we love, our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, this is beautifully answered by Paul's zealous example. Paul's example encourages his readers to pray continually for all of God's people to develop a culture of prayer. Like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 18 states, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus in you. Paul's use of present tenses for the verbs here in verse 16 also displays his ongoing commitment to pray for these believers. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 states, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul's attitude calls us upward, and his heart is to be emulated. Next, in verse 17 to 19a, their faith and love just mentioned motivates Paul to pray for them to have a deeper appreciation of all they have received from God through Christ. He moves from praise to petition. This is seen as our next point on the outline that Paul wants his readers to see the blessings mentioned in verse 3 through 14 as real in their lives. In verse 17, Paul prays that his readers will develop a deeper knowledge of God in the knowledge of God, stating that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Let's not skip over the beginning of this verse on who Paul is appealing to. The language used here to describe the God to whom he prays is beautiful, and defends his prayers to this God who has supreme capacity to answer those prayers. God of our Lord Jesus Christ is the same terms he used in verse 3 when speaking to the one who has blessed us. It also recognizes that this is the one whom even the Lord Jesus Christ acknowledges as God. Even further emphasis is placed when he names God as the Father of glory. As one commentator, Klein Snodgrass, states, Glory often refers to that which makes God visible, or to his activity of making himself visible. For example, the classic description of the revelation of God in Exodus chapter 33, verse 17, to chapter 34, verse 7, in which Moses asks to see God's glory. And given the context in Ephesians, the nuance seems to be, The Father who shows his glory. That is the Father who reveals himself. Our God is one who is worthy of glory and praise. The next words are may give, and then following that differs depending on the version you are reading. The NASB or the New American Standard Bible states, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. But the ESV which we read was may give to you the spirit, capital S, which many other versions also state. Most commentators agree that this is referring to the Holy Spirit being the one who imparts God's gifts in believers. And the theme of wisdom and revelation was emphasized already in verse 8 through 9. At salvation, God lavished his wisdom and understanding on his people. Here, Paul focuses on praying that the Ephesians will grow in these same treasures. The Spirit is already ours. As last week's lesson noted, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit in verse 13. 
So here Paul prays that the Spirit will continually reveal to the Ephesians a knowledge about God. Such as in Colossians chapter 1 verse 9, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. One last thing, to, one last important thing to note on this verse is the Greek word used for knowledge here is different than that which is typically used. The normal Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. However, here in verse 17, it's epinosis. Similarly, it is also used in the verse just read from Colossians 1.9. The preposition epi, added to the front here, emphasizes the meaning. This isn't a normal, worldly knowledge, but a deep, thoughtful, thorough, full kind of knowledge. A knowledge which perfectly unites the subject with the object. Which here it is stated to give you, you being the subject, knowledge of him, him being the object. Therefore, we're uniting you, or us, to him, God. This kind of knowledge can only come from God through the Holy Spirit when we are in Christ. And this developed knowledge would change the Ephesians' behavior. As stated in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? As Kent Hughes states, the great need of any church, whether it is healthy or not, is knowing Christ. An epinosis, a better, deeper, fuller knowledge of Christ. That is the key to all of life. We ought to read the scriptures with an eye to knowing him. We ought to listen to preaching with this in mind. We ought to pray this for the church and for ourselves. For it is a, excuse me, for it is an apostolic, excuse me, spirit-ordained prayer. I love that this is our church's mission statement, to know Jesus and to make him known. Thinking about this now with the understanding of epinosis changes my visualization of knowing Jesus. Remember, it is a deep strong, thorough, super knowledge of him and to be united to him. And this only comes as the Holy Spirit ministers to it. Ask for the Spirit to build your epinosis of Christ, who himself said, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him in Luke 11, verse 13. Changing from praying for a better knowledge of God in Christ, Paul moves on to request better spiritual vision in our next section, verses 18 to 19a. Paul prays for his readers to have a revelation in the Spirit, which will bring a three-part knowledge. Before getting to the three parts, though, we need to discuss this metaphor that Paul uses at the beginning of verse 18. Paul prays for the Ephesians to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. What strong language. This strikes me more than simply praying for understanding. If you think of Deuteronomy 28, 28, which states, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. One commentator, Henry Alford, explains to us, The word heart in scripture signifies the very core and center of life where the intelligence has its post of observation, where the stores of experience are laid up and the thoughts have their fountain, 
We do not need more truth or better truth, which is impossible. We simply need our spiritual eyes open to the truth. The perfect tense used here, enlighten, shows that Paul prays not for a moment's insight, but that they live enlightened lives. Paul prays that our spiritual center will be given spiritual vision. And specifically, Paul asks for better vision in regard to three things, hope, riches, and power. The first one is to know the hope to which he has called you in verse 18a. Well, in verse 12, Paul used the phrase first to hope as a synonym for salvation. But the hope he references here looks to the time when God will fully redeem us. A future blessing also mentioned in verses 7 and 10 when Christ will unite all things in him. Hope is a very important concept that Paul references a lot. In biblical usage, hope always conveys the sense of confident expectation of God's presence and saving actions. Despite any current situations, it is an assurance of our future when we are in Christ. In our text, Paul wants the readers to know that God called them to live in hope. Though Paul does not explicitly explain to them the content of hope, its use here depicts the tension of living in the already and the not yet. They live in a confident hope in this broken world that what they already have in Christ will be consummated on the day of fulfillment. Second, Paul prays his readers will know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the state, in the saints. Verse 18b. Paul is pointing here to the tremendous glory that is present when God inherits his people that he has set apart for himself. It is the Father's inheritance that Paul refers to here, not that of the believers. In the saints simply refers to what the inheritance is comprised of, these people or the saints. The revelation of who God truly is will take place when he inherits his own people. And his glory will then be manifested. Think of this for a moment, if you will. God owns all the heavens and numberless worlds, the mountains, the oceans, the rainforests, the beaches, but we are his treasures. The redeemed are worth more than the universe. Just let that sink in and feel the joy. Paul prays that we will see this with our heart's eyes. We belong to the creator God and are precious to him. It is an honor to belong to God and to receive what he gives as a result. Grace gives Grace gives believers many blessings, which we saw listed in the doxology. This inheritance is his, and yet its benefits come graciously from him as we share in it. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. The third revelation Paul prays for here is most emphasized and thus most important. Paul prays his readers will know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Verse 19a. Christian sisters, we should know that we serve and love a God of living power who shows his strength on behalf of his people. Many do not know this power or they know it from afar. God wants resurrection life to be real in our lives today. As Spurgeon put it, 
The very same power which raised Christ is waiting to raise the drunkard from his drunkenness, to raise the thief from his dishonesty, to raise the Pharisee from his self-righteousness, and to raise the Sadducee from his unbelief. With the mention of power here, Paul makes clear what has already been implied from the beginning, and it is an essential idea to this letter. In fact, Ephesians concentrates on words of power more than any other New Testament letter. In verse 19 alone, four different words for power are used in a layering effect, emphasizing God's power and action in his people's lives. Important to note here also, the focus on God's power is not on God's inherent power or on some cosmic display of force, but rather it is on God's life-giving power as it is specifically available for believers. Any way you can imagine and think of power is what you have access to as a believer in him. Colossians 1.11 is similar in stacking up power terms. It states, Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In this same sense, the prayer here looks back to the emphasis in the doxology on God's activity of planning and working for us and our salvation. Without this power, no part of the calling or hope would be possible. This focus on power shows that Paul wants to ensure that the Ephesians grasp, appreciate, and utilize this idea. Access to and exercising God's power enables us to overcome sin in our lives. The pronoun switch from you to us here also shows Paul including himself and all believers in this awareness and in the hope of the prayer. Paul shows us the importance of praying this for others. Our prayers for spiritual growth and enlightenment for our unsaved family members, our children, our grandchildren, or friends are of utmost importance. But this is also a prayer to pray for your brother and sister in Christ that sits next to you on Sunday. Paul shows us this truth by praying this for the Ephesian Christians. It is so important for us to pray for spiritual growth in ourselves and others. So if you flip to the back side of your outline papers in section 2 of the text, found in verse 19b to 23, In the NASB, the second part of verse 19 reads, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. This verse attaches the first section containing Paul's thanksgiving and supplications in his prayer to the second section covering his exaltation of God's power working in Christ. Having finished the obvious prayer portion, though Paul is still praying, he switches to a celebration of the power He requested for them working in Christ. The power that works in us is the same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead. The wording here in Greek actually uses the plural from the dead ones. The point is not that Christ was raised from a state of death, but that he was raised out from the dead ones. This is an important difference because it suggests that his resurrection was not viewed as an isolated event but as the first stage in the future resurrection. His resurrection is an inauguration of the final resurrection. Secondly, God utilizes this power to seek Christ at his own right hand in the heavenly places. 
Raising Christ from among those who are dead showed God's force, and seating Christ at his right hand shows his authority. The right hand signifies the position of honor, favor, and power, as in the chief executive. The emphasis, this emphasizes the importance of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. One commentator, Snodgrass, stated, Further, his exaltation shows that a shift has taken place. Life's center of gravity is not earthly life. It is in the heavenly realm with Christ and God. How important and how much peace, rest, and pure joy this truth brings to us today. And though we will sit with Christ in the heavenly realms, we will not be at God's right hand. Christ alone enjoys that position. God reversed for Jesus the universal finality of death and exalted him to the position of highest authority in the universe. Nothing is difficult for him. And because believers are raised up with Christ and possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in him, we have access to the throne room of power. This phrase of seated at his right hand alludes to Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And here in verse 21, we see that Christ will be far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The heavenly seating of Christ shows that he is above all kinds of powers. Paul again stacks up words to make this point extremely clear for us. That Jesus is above all powers, all rule, all authority, and dominion. Any conceivable authority, Jesus is above it. We also see the part stating above every name that is named. There is power in the naming of a known name or title. And given how important magic was in Ephesus where Diana was worshipped, this remark is important given its audience. Commentator Brock states, it is common in magical context to utter a name to try and gain control of the forces being confronted. Neither the authority of Rome nor that of hostile spiritual forces can stop what God is doing in Christ. Finally, the last part of this verse states, not only in this age, but in the one to come. This is a way of saying that the rule of Jesus holds no time. He isn't just in office for four years, but forever. In verse 22a, we see, and he put all things under his feet. This verse may seem a bit repetitive after the last one, but this is alluding to the initial role of humanity in creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, as well as to the divine authority Jesus possesses as part of the shared rule over creation. Psalm 8, 6 is cited here. You have, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. God's rule is mediated to the world through the authority of Jesus. The point here is not just that Christ is superior to all of the powers mentioned, but that they submit to him. Daniel chapter 7 verse 14 states, Jeff actually quoted this one too during Sunday school, (laughs) to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Lastly, we see in verse 22b and 23, Christ is head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The victory at the cross has resulted in an exalted Jesus 
And the church is a special beneficiary to all of this. This metaphor of Christ as the head and the church as his body is used by Paul many times. The church here does not just mean the Ephesians or one particular assembly, but the wider universal group of believers. Paul actually uses body to portray the church eight more times in this letter. The emphasis here is that Jesus' position as head stresses that he is Lord. The image of the body emphasizes his unity with believers and their unity with each other. Christ sits over all who gather in his name. One commentator observes the image of the church as the body of Christ is one of the Apostle Paul's most creative and profound contributions to theology. This further highlights Paul's in Christ thinking, which we've been going over. Like a physical body, the church has an organic connection with its head, the one who sustains it and who directs its activities. It is this arrangement that allows those who trust Jesus to rest in their identity in him, for the one who leads them also has authority over all creation. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 to 28 paints the picture further. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The ultimate gift of grace is the powerful Jesus Christ himself. The most difficult part of the passage to understand is the last verse, 23. There is again debate over how to interpret this verse. Most agree the best way is to see it this way. The church is filled by Christ who in turn fills all in every way. But Colossians 2.10 Colossians does support this idea stating, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul repeats a similar sentiment in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, which we will study later. He prays that the readers might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The Old Testament provides the proper background for understanding on this verse and the idea of fullness. God's presence, his glory, filled the tabernacle and the temple. And the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God filled his people. Fullness, therefore, refers to God making his presence and power felt. In the Old Testament, he filled the temple. Now he fills Christ, and Christ fills his own, so the church shares in the divine fullness. We can see in all of verses 19 through 23 that God is the main actor. He raised and exalted Christ, subjected all things to him, and gave him as head over the church for our benefit. Accordingly, verse 23b is a further description of Christ and his relationship to God. He is the fullness of God who fills all things. Christ is the place where God's presence, power, and salvation are known. And the church draws from this fullness when we are in him. The commentator C.F.D. Mole, I believe, states it best. Yes, this is here given as the final glory of the infinitely exalted Christ. Angels and archangels are subject to him, but believing men are joined to him with a union such that he and they, by the same messenger of his, are called elsewhere one Christ. The elsewhere in this quote is a reference to 1 Corinthians 12.12, 12, which states, For just as the body is one and has many members... 
and all the members of the body. Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. After studying this passage in verses 15 through 23, I felt a conviction toward my commitment of praying for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I felt a need to focus more on praying for their faith to deepen, for God to continue the good works he started in them, to pray that both myself and those I love will have the eyes of our hearts open to have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, and to praise with joy when hearing or witnessing the spiritual accomplishments of my brothers and sisters in Christ. But at the same time, I feel so encouraged and uplifted by Paul's zealous prayer for the Ephesians. Mostly the hope felt in this message. Death haunts us in this world. Suffering, pain, grief, crime, racism, terrorism, and more threatens us in our joy. We feel a sense that we cannot solve our problems. We cannot help ourselves or others or society. But we have a living hope. God's work in Christ addresses the problems we feel plagued by. Death is not the end. We can look forward to our happy ending of life with God. And hope should be our positive force that we use to help ourselves and others. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know what God's call meant for their future and therefore their present. I pray this for every single one of you here. God has called us to be among his future people. Hope changes everything and should become the basis for which we live in this world, in the present. Paul's prayer places an emphasis on the power for which God brought life from death, a power that is available to us today so we can deal with the world we live in and that we can sing praises to God no matter our current situation. We live in the already, but not yet. The future we look to when we will be raised and exalted with Christ should change the way we live today. Knowledge, hope, riches, and power are ours when we are in Christ. Romans chapter 8, 19-24 states, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed for us to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Skip down. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Thank you.